Your host, Bill Petrie, begins this Differing Things podcast with the statement, it is of far-reaching importance and vital consequence to recognize that the person of our Lord cannot really be known and understood apart from the cross. It is equally of consequence to realize that the cross is only really understood and adequately appreciated when the person of Christ is discerned. These two work together and are mutually dependent. The study of the cross and the humanity of Jesus Christ will transform your life. Now for your host, Bill Petrie. It is of far-reaching importance and vital consequence to recognize that the person of our Lord cannot really be known and understood apart from the cross. It is equally of consequence to realize that the cross is only really understood and adequately appreciated when the person of Christ is discerned. These two work together and are mutually dependent. So the question comes up, who is Jesus Christ? In the days of his earthly life, his disciples and the people wanted a cross-less Christ. They could see no place for the cross. It was a contradiction of all their hopes and expectations. Whenever he referred to it, a dark shadow crept over them, and they were offended. Indeed, they revolted quite openly against the idea and suggestion. Running parallel to this inability to discern the meaning and the value of the cross was, on the one hand, his continual reference to his own essential person as Son of God, and on the other hand, their total inability to recognize him. Only in fleeting flashes of illumination did one or two of them see him as such. And then? And then it would seem from their behavior that they lost the realization and the general clouds of uncertainty wrapped around them once again. The state and position in which we find them when he has been crucified indicates how the reality of his person had failed to possess their innermost life. But the interesting and significant thing is that the Lord all the time indicated that this twofold inability would be removed when the cross was an accomplished fact. The eighth chapter of John's gospel is a strong example of this. In it, Jesus is concentrating everything upon the question of his person. John chapter 8, verses 12 through 25 states, I am the light of the world. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest witness of yourself? Your witness is not true. Jesus answered, My witness is true, for I know whence I come and whither I go, but you know not whence I come and whither I go. They said, Where is your father? 
Jesus answered, you know me, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He said unto them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. They said therefore unto him, who are you? Jesus said unto them, even that which I have also spoken unto you from the beginning. Then comes the statement, which is the turning point of everything in John. In John 8, verse 27, we read, Jesus therefore said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am he. If you want a real eye-opener, just read on to the end of the chapter. By something more than implication, Jesus had laid down the same principle with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was groping in the shadows as to the person of Christ. We know that you are a teacher come from God. Jesus pointed out that in order to see something must take place by which a new faculty is obtained. A new birth would be necessary for Nicodemus and for the nation of Israel. Then he led Nicodemus on to the cross. Using the same phrase as in chapter 8, John 3.14 states, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The law verbalizes it will be the cross which discloses who Jesus is. Within what we have just said lies the very essence of the significance of Christ. Let us look briefly at that essential content. What is the thing for which Christ stands preeminently in the whole revelation of Scripture? The answer is union with God the Father. That has been the thing for which man has been in searching ever since man has been a sinful creature. In almost countless ways and by as many means, he has sought that peace and rest which is to be had alone by oneness with God. Somewhere, somehow, the Bible shows us a fellowship with God was lost. Three things became the abiding and ever active marks of this rupture of relationships. One, the lie. Two, enmity. And three, death. The results of the fall resulted in those three things. Let's talk about the lie first. A lie believed. Man has not only believed and accepted a lie, but his, it has entered his constitution, and he is a deceived and darkened soul. Man was told 
that if he took a course contrary to that laid down by God and assumed the right to use his own reason independently of God, he would be as God. He accepted the lie, made his bid for supremacy, enthroned his reason in independence, and was taken charge of by the lie. The outworking of this has been and is a tremendous development of human achievement by which man has become a lord in his own right and blinded to the fact that destruction and distress are an ever-growing fruit of his science. So much is this so that the question has been seriously raised by men in a position to ask it as to whether science is a greater benefactor than it is a curse. It must be remembered that most unemployment, with its many consequent miseries and troubles, is due to science, which has supplanted men by machines and human skill by mass production. The same responsibility lies at the door of science for the ability to destroy men in the earth on such an immense scale as was unthinkable a few generations ago. Project the present course and pace into a few more generations. And what sort of a world will it be? Of course, the argument is not that science is in itself necessarily evil. But my point is that man believes that he is all the time improving. When as a matter of fact, there is no moral elevation corresponding to the intellectual development. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, once wrote, and I quote, Both history and science give us warrant for believing that humanity has made great advances in accumulating knowledge and experience and in devising instruments of living. And the value of all these is indisputable. But they do not constitute real progress in human nature itself. And in the absence of such progress, those gains are external, precarious, and liable to be turned to our own destruction. End of quote. Surely this bears out the words of the apostle. And so the word of the scripture comes true. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 through 25 state, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will make nothing of the intelligence of those who profess to know. God makes the wisdom of the world foolishness, for it was in that wisdom that the world lost the knowledge of God. It was by reason of that that its eyes were closed, and lo, the wisdom of God now appearing is proclaimed as a foolish thing, foolish in the sight of that old wisdom. It does not commend itself to the old wisdom. Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. There is more. There is more wisdom in God's foolishness than in men's cleverness. The second point. Enmity established. The same is true as to the matter of enmity. Enmity. It is never a far cry from a personal interest in self-realization to war and bloodshed. We do not read 
of much history between Adam's bid for personal glory and Cain's murder of his brother. The two are one in principle, whether it be in individual cases as at the beginning or in the case of millions locked in deadly destruction of each other. The root is found to be man's desire to acquire. The name Cain means possessiveness. We must be perfectly honest about this. The Christian church is no exception to this rule. Christians have become divided into thousands of parties or denominations. And a very great many of these are antagonistic to each other or at least distantly suspicious of one another. The enmity among believers is taken account of even in the New Testament. All one need do is read the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. It is the Satan's work every time. But even the Satan must have his ground. This he has in the moral character of fallen humanity. Every division among God's people is, in essence, the same as the enmities of the wars in a godless world. It is traceable to some defective element of self-asserting itself. There never was, nor will be, a truly Christly division among Christians. Every such division is somewhere a denial and contradiction of Christ. The apparent cause may not be some flaming fleshliness, but it will, nevertheless, be other than the way of Christ. Enmity is a mark of interrupted, arrested, or broken oneness with God. And I will leave it there at the moment. Let's talk about the third feature for a second, death. This third feature of this destroyed union with God is death. If life is the perfect adjustment and harmony of man with God, then man has not got life. The New Testament assumes this. It does not argue it. Death is not in the Bible sense, a cessation of being, nor is it a state of inanimation. It is just a separation from the source of how God intended us to be. With all the incapitation which that separation involves. Death is a powerfully active thing, and in all the things which really relate to God's will, it works out in a mighty cannot. For the realization of all God's designs and purposes in the constituting of the creation which he intends, the possession of his own divine and uncreated life, is essential. Man by his character, does not possess that life. And humanism is one of the most subtle and popular and the most devastating forms of the satanic lie. Man, in an unsaved condition, 
cannot see the kingdom of God. Union with God is a matter of possessing God's life. That provision is an impartation by being made into a new creature. Thus, we are led up to both the person and the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, there yet remain depths too profound and dangerous for even enlightened people of God to attempt to explore. The one thing that is clear as a conclusion is that the incarnation is intended to set forth the union between God and man and man and God, which is the divine intention. Here we have very God joining himself with very man. But, and let it be well understood, not with sinful man or with our fallen humanity, God prepared that body, that holy thing, as Hebrews 10.5 and Luke 1.35 state. When Christ came into this world, there came with him a humanity, which while being humanity was different from all the rest. There were, therefore, two humanities. One represented uniquely by this solitary person, the other by all the rest of humanity. But even so, his humanity was but a probationary one. And as much as the animating principle of his physical being was blood, he was subject to tiredness, hunger, and thirst, and therefore capable of dying and seeing corruption. That he did die, but did not see corruption, was due to the moral perfection or holiness of his nature. You will not suffer your Holy One to see corruption, Psalm 16.10 states. The probationary condition of Christ wholly related to his redemptive vocation. When that was accomplished, he still had a human body, but it was no longer animated by the blood principle or basis of life. Now while a body... It is a spiritual body, and therefore a glorified body. It is not unto the likeness of Christ's earthly pre-resurrection body that we are to be conformed, but like unto his glorious body, or body of glory. As a sidebar, I am aware that what I have said may raise a question as to the incorruptible blood of Christ. But my point is in no wise a question as to his moral nature, simply one of his being placed on the basis of life for the time being, which made him, which made everything possible for him to die physically. Corruption is only regarded in this sense, not spiritual or moral. I am pointing out that in Christ, God and man have come together. Yet in a man altogether other than ourselves. Therefore, union with God 
which is the major revelation of the Bible, revealed con consummately in the New Testament, is always and only found in Christ. Until we pass over on to the resurrection life basis, it will always be a faith position in him, not an actual one in our mortal flesh. But I'll talk about this a little bit more later on. In Christ, God has his perfect satisfaction and has therefore committed himself to him. The union is perfect. But this implies or postulates that the threefold result and mark of the broken union is absolutely ruled out and non-existent in Christ. Or to put it round the other way, Christ is the opposite in the negation of the lie, the enmity, and death. So it is that the most spiritual and heavenly revelation of Christ is given in John's gospel is in terms of life, light, and love. Light and truth are interchangeable names. In this record, Christ makes these things far more than abstractions. He makes them personal and says, I am these. There is no darkness, shadow, lie, or lack of absolute transparency in him. There is no enmity, strife, schism, or warfare in his nature, nor in his attitude or relationship toward men as men. In him there is no separation from the fountain of life. He can say, I am the resurrection and the life in John eleven twenty five. All this negation of the results of broken union with God was because there was no self in him. It can be easily seen that the whole effort of the Satan in its many forms was to get him to act on some line of self, self-interest, self-realization, self-defense, self-preservation, self-pity, self-independence, self-resource, and the list could go on. To have succeeded in this matter at any point would have been to drive a wedge between God and man anew and to have defeated the whole plan of redemption. But the pure ground of utter selflessness was maintained at the greatest cost and through the most fiery trial and the prince of this world was helpless the union remained intact. Life, light, and love are triumphant because self is utterly negated. But this is all as to himself. And thus far, it remains his uniqueness. He abides alone if it stays there. So we pass on in John's gospel to the point at which certain ones come saying, 
in John 12, verse 21, we would see Jesus. To this inquiry or quest, Jesus makes a reply, which means two things. One, to see me as others, to see me as others see me, here and now, is not to see me at all. That is to see and not perceive. The other, to really see and know me, union with me, in an organic way, is necessary. That is what is true of me, in my relationship with my Father, and his relationship with me, must become true in an inward way where you are concerned. In light of this, John 12, 24 states, Except the grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abides by itself alone. But if it die, it bears much fruit. Christ did not come to abide alone. What is true of me as to union with the Father is meant to be for you in me, he could state. But at this point, we are carried by the person to the cross. John 12, verse 27 records, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. A little further in a text, we read verses 32 and 33, which state, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all humanity unto myself. But this he said, signifying but what manner of death he should die. The Apostle Paul has covered this whole ground in one comprehensive, illuminating, and explanatory statement in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. The love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge that one died for all. Therefore, all died. And I will add, in him. And he died for all, that they that live should no longer live unto themselves, but unto him who for their sakes died and rose again. Someone has freely translated this in this way. I behold the love of Christ. I see in his one death, the death of all of us already accomplished after the manner of his death, the death of all that separates us from God. Christ has accomplished unity with God and all humanity will have union with him. This is all saying very strongly that we really know who Christ is as the one in whom alone God and man are brought together. 
we must come to the cross in an experimental way. We must apprehend his death as ours. And then also in experience through faith, know a risen life in him in which the old self-life has been put away. Because of the cross, this eventually becomes true for all humanity. For Christ died for all. Christ was indeed the sacrifice for all. And yes, just as the Apostle Paul wrote to, the, wrote to Timothy in the Timothy epistle, he is the Savior of all men. But we must step back for a moment. What was the real meaning of the cross? And what did it affect? All we have said about the person of Christ was true of him altogether apart from the cross. For him, the cross was no necessity. There came a time, however, when he had to be made what he himself was not. In that hour, he was placed in the position of man as the victim of Satan's lie with its darkness. So also was he made to become a sin sacrifice for us. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where we read, For the one not knowing sin, he makes to be a sin offering for our sakes, that we may be becoming God's righteousness in him. So he died. He tasted death, awful death. But in himself, he was God's sinless son. And as such, he could not be held of death, according to Acts 2.24, which states, Whom God raises, loosing the pains of death, for as much as it was not possible for him to be held by it. In virtue of his essential sinlessness, he overcame and destroyed the causes, the ground, the strength, and the originator of death. It took more than a man to do this. God was in Christ, reconciling a world unto himself, states 2 Corinthians 5.19. Thus in the cross, all the cause and nature of separation from God was destroyed. And in Christ risen, that union is perfect for us. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 states. This perfect no-condemnation fellowship with God made actual by the Holy Spirit taking up residence within us through our believing into Christ is the possession of those alone, but is surely the birthright of such who have come to the cross in realization of separation from God, in deepest longing for restored fellowship with him, and an acknowledgement that sin is the cause. Thus looking to Christ crucified as the author and perfecter of salvation, they discover that he is more than a man, even man at his greatest. 
they discover that in him and in him alone, God is found. But it works the other way. Can we imagine what Saul of Tarsus felt like? He who had believed Jesus of Nazareth to have been but a man and an imposter among men and to have been executed as a fraud and blasphemer when he saw on the Damascus road that this glorified, exalted one was God's son. It needed a time in Arabia to let the implications of that adjust and revolutionize his whole outlook. When we see whose cross that was, it puts the cross so far beyond all human ideas of dying for ideals, heroic death for a great cause, and all such lesser and altogether inadequate interpretations of Christ's death. 1 Timothy 1.16 states, But because of this I was treated with mercy, so that in me first Jesus Christ might demonstrate all long suffering for pattern to them which should in the hereafter be believing into him to life, Eonian. Paul was saved in a different, in a very different way than we are. His was salvation by direct divine intervention. In Acts chapter 22, verses 6 through 11, Paul gives an account of his conversion. I want you to read that, and I'm going to ask you a question. Is this the way that you were saved? And my answer is hardly. Saul, who later was called Paul, was an arch enemy of God. It took the direct hand of God to stop him in his tracks and turn him around. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said that his salvation was a pattern or a type or a picture, but it was not a pattern of our salvation. Our conversation or conversion in no way resembles his. A closer look at what Paul said will reveal that he did not tell Timothy that his salvation was a pattern for ours. He says that his conversion was a pattern not for now, but for those who should hereafter believe. A definition of hereafter found in Webster's American Dictionary of the English Language from 1828 defines it as in a future state. The Greek word is Strong's Greek lexicon word number 3195, which is the Greek word mellow. Here are some verses where the word is used. Matthew 3, 7. Matthew 12, 32, Luke 3, 7, Romans 8, 38, 1 Corinthians 3, 22, Ephesians 1, 21, Colossians 2, 17, 
1 Timothy 4.8, Hebrews 2.5, Hebrews 6.5, Hebrews 9.11, Hebrews 10.1, Hebrews 13.14. Clearly the Greek word mellow speaks of that which is to come. And the words hereafter in 1 Timothy 1.16 speaks of the hereafter. Saul did not believe by simple faith apart from sight. It took the Damascus Road experience to bring him to Christ. He met up with the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, the extent to which God will go to reach man. He is much less limited than we are in his evangelism. Paul says that his salvation is a pattern for those who should believe hereafter. And this salvation shows forth all of God's long-suffering. Paul is not only our apostle in this current dispensation of the grace of God, but he is a pattern or type of salvation of unbelievers after their death. The unbelieving, the obstinate, the oppressors, the enemies of God will all have a dramatic conversion coming face to face with their Savior in the resurrection, in the hereafter. So I come back to my starting point tonight. It requires the cross to really see who Jesus is. And in the seeing of him truly by the cross, we see how great, wonderful, sacred, and marvelous is that cross. Not one person of humanity is left behind in the cross work of Jesus Christ. No wonder. Satan has ever sought to take from Jesus Christ's essential person and to make Christ something less. No wonder what Christ accomplished has been attacked and confused by our enemy to lead us to believe that Jesus Christ really did not do what he set out to do which was to seek and to save that which was lost. Oh, how much of Christendom is confused and believes that the majority of what Christ sought out was indeed lost. No wonder that Satan has so persistently sought to strip the cross of its total, absolute victory. Let all who do either of these things recognize from where their inspiration or blindness comes and with whom it is that they, oh, that they, though unintentionally, are in league with. Let Christians also realize that all enmity, lack of love, divisions, and strife all prejudice, suspicion, and spiritual blindness is because 
the cross has not been apprehended correctly. Somewhere, uncrucified flesh is holding the ground. It is impossible to be truly crucified man or woman and at the same time either have personal interests or be at variance with other children of God, to be without love for them. The essential basis of life, light, and love, which is Christ in full manifestation, is the cross, is a working reality in the realm of the old creation, in the risen power of Christ in us, in the new creation. All this is but saying, in other words, that the cross of Christ brings us into living union and oneness with God. And if we will but live in the full meaning and value of that union, we shall be living epistles of Christ in terms of life, light, and love. Failure in these means failure somewhere. And for some reason, in our fellowship with God in Christ, the measure of our walk with him will be the measure of these three features of Jesus Christ. Good day and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast. Thank you.